Peter Sloterdijk, Spheres 2, Globes. Page 753, Excursus 6. The de-crowning of Europe. An anecdote about the tiara. In the event that a philosophical history of headgear is one day written, which will be inevitable once engagement with the content of head content has been exhausted, this would be the best form in which to recall a bygone age in which humans carried their central idea both on their heads and in them. The members of pre-modern humanity declared their stance towards their world in hats. Among the visible cranial supplements or external capital ideas, the crowns and mitres occupy an eminent position. Not only because their circular form harbours the human head in a close-fitting, encompassing figure, but also because they indicate the presence of majesty or divine consecration atop a head, both through themselves and through their ritual use. Should consecration and majesty, which are usually separate charismas, exceptionally come together on an exceptional head such that mitre and crown coincide, this would confirm the optimistic hypothesis that human heads are also suitable as carriers, philosophically speaking, as that which underlies, of the highest secular and spiritual thoughts. Above all, one can speak of such a head-born, or otherwise embodied, highest thought if an individual person is set apart by singular headgear as the centre of humanity, or as a living principle, principe, prince. In Europe, this crown optimism is a fact whose history begins in the early 14th century and ends in the middle of the 20th. It is initially a history of competition between papal and imperial headgear. One need not be a specialist in medieval history to know that the papal head was in front at the end, meaning that it gained a notable coronatory head start on other adorned heads. How exactly this papal advantage was gained is a matter of some controversy, even among experts. We can only be sure that the problem of the highest crown was set in motion in Rome under Boniface VIII, whose papacy from 1294 to 1303 is considered the climax of plentiful papal power and initially towards a two-storey structure. The starting situation of this development had established itself around the turn of the 13th century, when the new leader of the church had first the mitra, then the tiara, which had a single ring at the time, placed on his head by the cardinal dean. For the wearers of both items, their symbolism seemed self-evident. It was clear that the mitre was used liturgically, 
in the mass and wherever else the wearer desired by virtue of its pontifical function pro sacerdotio while the tiara was used extra liturgically as a sign of rulership pro regno for regal appearances receptions processions and the like the coronation employed a formula that is suitable to remind subsequent generations of the symbolic realism of medieval thought for the tiara as such was thenceforth often termed corona sive regnum as if to emphasize very clearly that the crown did not stand for rulership or kingship but rather was rulership or kingship Bonifacio went on from here and added a second story to the papal tiara though the second ring only seemingly had the purpose of symbolizing the twofold power of the pope in sacred and secular matters researchers have read all manner of pious notions into it with reference to the two kingdoms doctrine which is nonsense as the difference and configuration of the kingdoms was already sufficiently articulated in the dualism of the mitre and corona in reality the second ring was part of a coronal escalation this was a response to the provocation of imperial headwear for the emperor like the pope wore both a clerical mitre and his imperial diadem which cannot have been observed from rome without some disgruntlement the one-upmanship of boniface's papal tiara is self-evident the adjacency of mitre and single crown was now considered dissatisfactory and corrected by the stacking of two coronal rings in the secular crown naturally Boniface did not attack the emperor via the mitre, which did not permit any increase, but on the side of the crown. Crowned with the bi regnum, the papal head thus became the bearer of an idea of majesty that exceeded the imperial head, together with its superstructions, by a noticeable margin, which fulfilled the purpose of the operation. In fact, Boniface pushed the regnum atop his head to a full cubit's length which was already criticized by certain contemporaries as a hubristic return of the self-cult of the heathen emperors. Boniface's crown was, as it were, the extra-liturgical seal on the thesis of the infamous bull, Unam Sanctum, which, final sentence, is as follows. <clears throat> Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. This subordination, subessa, was demanded not so much for the mitre-wearing bishop as for the anointed Caesar who adorned himself with the double regnum. The two-tiered crown of Boniface was the perfect expression of culminating Roman papo-Caesarism. This escalation was felt in all its severity by the symbol-sensitive public sphere of European rulers, and the culprit was spontaneously repaid in kind. It was not the emperor who parried the papal foray, however, but Philip the Fair, 
king of France, who struck the inflated crown from the head of Christ's representative in 1303 in the outrage of an agony. Bonifacio did not survive the monstrous act of his capture by agents of a worldly power for long. The lingering shock of his humiliation claimed his life that same year. At the Council of Vienne, Philip succeeded in forcing Clement V, 1305-1314, Bonifacio's second successor, to annul the validity of the bull Unam Sanctam for France. From Vienne onwards, then, the removal of the two-tiered crown by the Pope was a fait accompli. After a short trial period, the most serious attempt to expand the papal head heavenwards had been thwarted by worldly resistance. In effect, the Pope would no longer be able to raise his crowned head above that of a nation's king. How the classical three-tiered papal crown, the so-called tiara, could take shape in the light of these circumstances after the decommissioning of the papo-caesarist biregnum is a question that surely merits closer examination for historians of head-covering ideas. In our context, it is sufficient to note that the Pope, whose hands were tied when it came to the King of France, placed all the more emphasis on his symbolic rivalry with the German Emperor, hence the coronation of Henry VII. 1309-1313, as Holy Roman Emperor by a Popal Legate in June 1312, it was a welcomed occasion to display the primacy of the Pope over the Empire on the traditional front. It is understandable that a heightened sensitivity to the Crown had established itself in Avignon after the humiliation suffered. Well, now it was all the more displeasing that the German imperial ideologues were becoming a talking point with overblown theories of the crown that gave the emperor precedence over all the rulers of the world on account of his triple crowning. Just as Christ symbolically wore a triple diadem comprising the crowns of mercy, justice and glory. As for the imperial triregnum, it consisted of the silver German crown of Aachen, the iron Lombardic crown of Milan, or Monza, and finally the golden crown of the King of the Romans, which passed through the hands of the Bishop of Rome to the Emperor's head. As far as the facts suggest, there is no plan on the imperial side to collect this trinity of crowns in a single tiered one. All that is relevant for the later formal development is the Roman crown of the emperor, which was a compromise between a mitre and a conventional crown, with the crown's metallic housing enclosing a slightly scaled down conical mitre. It is the archetype of the magnified papal tiaras. But the question remains, how did the triregnum come to adorn the heads of popes when the biregnum had already caused such offence that Bonifacio's successors were forced to refrain from wearing it. At this sensitive point, there is a significant gap in the history of papal headgear. If we turn the page, 
we already stumble on the glib assurance of liturgy historians that from 1350 onwards the triregnum was the characteristic headdress of the popes. The liturgologists maintain polite silence, however, on the matter of how this one-upmanly imitation of the imperial crown ended up on the papal head. One can understand why, for they would inevitably, assuming that documents of the embarrassment were still accessible, have had to mention that it was precisely the weak post-Bonifacian popes who symbolically took the bull by the horns by donning a super-imperial crown. The nub of the tale is that they could do so without arousing the jealousy of the French kings anew, which tells us enough about the conditions of power and meaning in that time, as well as their interpretation by the protagonists on the European stage. This contains a decisive information for the following. It was under the Avignonese popes, theological marionettes of the French kings, that the habit of wearing three-story crowns was firmly established among St. Peter's successors. Thus, with their ironic tolerance, the French and their kings effectively established a new semantics of the crown, in which the object was no longer itself the regnum, but only signified the regnum. Yet, signification, as we know, is a broad subject. It was on the heads of the French popes that nominalism was successfully put into practice for the first time. A crown is a crown, while power is power. So, because a deep gulf opened up in logic itself between words and things, between images and powers, the French kings no longer needed to feel provoked by a highest crown whose primary function was recognisably to give a humiliated pope symbolic satisfactions in the face of a ghostly empire. Beneath the smiles of the French, the popes of Avignon could embrace the phantoms of the specialist hatters. For the next 200 years, the headgear of the popes would cease to be one of the highest objects of reflection by old European reason. Only with the Reformation did the time come for a new dispute of this kind, and it revealed itself in a flood of claims about the multiple meanings of the tiara. In his text, De Tribus Coronis Pontificus Maximi, Rome, 1587, Marcus Antonius Mazzaronius arrayed dozens of possible and actual meanings, thus hinting at the transition to the theory of an exhaustible coronal meaning. The three-story structure of the papal tiara means virtually everything that can be associated with the number three, from the persons of the Trinity to the group of theological virtues, namely faith, love and hope. What is more interesting than these exercises in Baroque theologians' verbosity, however, is the iconographic developments that augmented, that augmented the three-tiered crown by placing the cross-crowned globe on top of it. The most prominent example being a tiara occasionally worn by the statue of St. Peter in papal robes at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Another, though fixed to the head, adorns the statues of Gregory the Great at the Theatine Church in Munich in Osterburen Abbey.
Whether popes from the 16th century onwards actually wore globe-topped tiaras is uncertain, but highly probable. The motif was in the air, and corresponds to the title Rector Orbis, which, according to the Roman Missal form from the 16th century, was the form of address chosen by the popes at their coronations. In practice, admittedly, the popes, as we shall see, were not so much the controllers as the notaries of globalisation. The addition of the world orb to the tip of the tiara can be recognised as the final move in a symbolic escalation with which the head of the Counter-Reformation Church sought one more time to stake a claim on the highest earthly coronation in the age of incipient terrestrial globalisation. The rest of the history took a conventional course. Only once more did a tiara attract a degree of attention when, after the Treaty of Tolentino in February 1797, Pius VI had to silver plate the magnificent tiara of Julius II in order to pay war contributions to the young General Napoleon. After his spectacular self-coronation in Paris in 1804, incidentally, in which he snubbed the attendant pope, Napoleon no longer wore the crown at representative appearances, but rather, as the first monarch since antiquity to do so, donned the laurel wreath. Only after 160 years, on November the 12th, 1964, was the question of the suitable papal headgear stirred up for one last time. Though who can be sure in such matters? When Paul VI, in a solemn act towards the end of the Second Vatican Council that was breathtaking for eyewitnesses, took off his personal tiara in the council hall and made a gift of it to the poor, he never wore a tiara thereafter. It is unclear whether his successors should be constrained to follow his example. The Vatican and the officious liturgologists prefer to remain vague about the matter. In this state of affairs, it does not seem far-fetched to take Paul VI the renunciation of the tiara as a confession that could not be circumvented by later popes. His two immediate successors, John Paul I and John Paul II, de facto adapted to the new standard, both dispensed with coronation and the wearing of the tiara. It can safely be assumed that the tiara of Paul VI was still sold during his office. It is rumoured that the publisher Time Life acquired it for an undisclosed sum of money, which fits very well into the picture of the Pauline decrowning, for had the tiara not been exchanged for at least a seven-figure dollar sum, the gesture of a gift to the poor would have remained an empty one. We do know that a few years later, Paul VI discovered his special love for the Catholic Church of the USA and sought to express it by, on February the 6th, 1968, giving his personal tiara to the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception for permanent display. Symbol-sensitive Europeans may be bemused by the fact that the last active tiara is now located in Washington, D.C., albeit demoted to the stages of an exhibition piece. It would be somewhat exaggerated to interpret this as a symbol of imperial transfer to the Americans, especially as a tiara is not a unique specimen. Thus, even the sale of a tiara to non-Europeans and its safekeeping by Catholics in the USA would not 
per se rule out a return to this headdress habitus. One could imagine circumstances in the near future of the European Union under which the papal tiara might become significant once more as a symbolic resource of European self-affirmation. If tiaras disappear from papal heads in general, however, though not from the Vatican's letterheads, then this non-dress should also be understood as an idea that manifests itself to the head of a non-wearer, provided one can recognise the zero as such. If the never-crowned do not wear crowns, this does not contain any information that would move the public. But if the potentially highest crowned figure appears uncrowned, then the absence of the crown from the head has the character of a statement. The zero tiara option is a vote on how crownable the heads of the bishops of Rome are. Perhaps it is time to conclude with regard to the extra-liturgical headgear of the popes, the decentering of Europe had been carried out since 1964 by the last imperiomorphic authority of the old world. Through the turn of globalization towards the terrestrial, the crisis of those ideas that can be worn on heads is combined with that of the ideas inside them.